what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Stephanie Merritt is an English critic, feature writer and novelist. She's contributed to various publications, including The Times, The Observer and The Guardian, and in 2010 she published Heresy, the first in her thrilling series of historical mysteries under the pen name S.J. Paris, all of which have been met with critical acclaim and I enjoy them very much myself. Stephanie has appeared regularly as a critic and panellist on radio and television, as well as being a judge for the Costa Biography Award, Orange New Writing Award and the Perrier Award. Most importantly, she's a patron of Humanist UK. Stephanie, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, for some people, we start off with their, with their youth and upbringing or their profession um, and the values that uh, they need to speak about it in relation to those. And I, we will come on to your upbringing because I think that that um, does, is, is an area of interest uh, in your life. But I wanted to start somewhere else, somewhere different. Um, your... Uh, I don't know if they're your bestsellers, actually. I don't know. They're the ones that I've read voraciously more than once, uh, each of them, and, and have loved. But um, your best-known, I think, series of novels um, are ones featuring the real person, real historical figure of Giordano Bruno. Yeah. And um, you've written novels about him. I was just wondering what it was that made you choose him as a character? Is he a hero to you? What do you admire about him? And um, why is it that you decided to make him the centrepiece of, of, of all these works? Well, there's a lot um, to unpack there. He is a hero of mine. And that's something that's developed the, the more I've studied him and the more I've got to know him uh, and got to know his life story. But I first came across him when I was a student um, and I, I did an English literature degree. And the part of that that I was most uh, fascinated by was Renaissance literature. And so I, I sort of specialised in that. And um, when I was studying uh, Elizabethan literature, I came across various references to him. He'd been in London in the 1580s, and he'd been part of the circle around on the sort of fringes of the Elizabethan court that included people like Philip Sidney and Dr. John Dee, who was Elizabeth's astrologer. And uh, and so he, he, Bruno was sort of part of this circle of influential thinkers who slightly dabbled in occult philosophy. Uh, and I was quite interested. I, I came across a couple of references to him and, and wanted to hear a little bit more, wanted to find out a bit more about who he was. So I started looking into his life story and uh, I discovered that he just had this most extraordinary kind of uh, life full of adventures. He was born in 1548 near Naples he was the son of a soldier, but obviously very, very smart. And so he got into um, the academy that was attached to uh, the convent of San Domenico Maggiore in Naples, which was a very prestigious Dominican uh, monastery, or convent as they called it then. And uh, and that was really the only way for somebody of his 
background to to study um, because you know he he didn't his family didn't have money, so he went into the Dominican order and then uh, in 1576 he escaped from San Domenico from the convent and he had to go on the run. He escaped over the wall, uh, and this was the part of the story that I really loved. He had been caught in the toilet reading forbidden books uh, and specifically he was reading Erasmus which was uh, that on the uh, yeah on the inquisition's um list of forbidden books the, the index of forbidden books so he was uh, he used to get all these books that were banned to uh, to young dominican monks and um and he would hide in the toilet and eventually somebody somebody noticed that he was spending uh, an unusually long time in there <laughs> And they broke the door down and it, and he threw this copy of Erasmus down the hole into the cesspit. Oh, no. But uh, they were determined enough, the, his superiors at uh, the convent were determined enough that they somebody went in after it and fished it out to find out what he'd been reading. Uh, and he was going to be sent uh, to answer, you know, for his uh, rule breaking in front of the Inquisition. And so rather than face questioning, because this was, it was sort of the second or third time that he'd been suspected of um you know, non-orthodox beliefs. Yes. So uh, in order to escape that, he he went over the wall in the middle of the night and he basically went on the run and he was um, excommunicated in absentia for, for breaking the rules because you couldn't leave your convent without permission. Uh, and he went on the run and he was a sort of itinerant, you know, he begged for a while and, and he travelled all the way up through Italy Um Picking up teaching work and and work as a scribe and uh, but eventually he he ended up in France um, and uh, got a job teaching at a university in France. Then worked his way up to Paris and within five years of basically being a vagabond, he had become personal tutor of philosophy to the King of France. And uh, I was always just fascinated by this this extraordinary charisma that he must have had. To, in order to be able to kind of to make this transformation. And he spent the rest of his life traveling through. So he was in England for three years and, and then he left and went back to France. And then he traveled through Germany uh, and went to Prague. And eventually he was sort of lured back to Italy where he thought the Inquisition would have forgotten about him. And, uh, and he was betrayed and, and ended up being arrested um, for, on charges of heresy. And, uh, and he was executed for his um for his heretical beliefs after 8 years of imprisonment so that, that that's quite interesting in itself it you know his heresies weren't clear cut enough and he was a controversial enough figure that the inquisition were quite wary about the public outcry um and eventually in in Rome he was executed and there's a a statue to him in the place where he was burned in the Campo dei Fiori which uh was put up in the 19th century and I I'm sure Many people will have seen it or been to Rome to see it, um, and it's become a, a kind of a focal point for free thinking societies. And every yes. year, yeah, every year on the anniversary of his execution, um, there's a big gathering, and uh, the city authorities lay a wreath, and uh, and people come from all over the country and, and indeed all over the world to pay tribute to him, and and you know, radicals and free thinkers and poets yes. and you know, occult. Uh, you know, disciples of the occult, and because he had such a wide-ranging um, 
range of beliefs, I suppose, that, that he's Well, become, that's the interesting yeah. thing, isn't it? Because he, as you say, he did, especially in the 19th century, obviously, his, his, he, he attracted the attention of free thinkers. And there are, there are humanist organisations in Europe today named after him, yeah. you know, um, and he's held up as this sort of icon. Um, of free thought, of radicalism, and by some of sort of, he's a hero to many humanists, but of course, not a humanist. I mean, someone who had um, what, you know, you could describe as quite strange um, uh, beliefs, certainly um, not ones that you would presumably hold yourself i i don't think you are an occultist uh, uh no, an islamic I, uh, astrologist <laughs> and so, on and so, forth. so it's not those things you admire about him it sounds like you join with the 19th century free thinkers in admiring his 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 pursuit of knowledge his freedom of thought what he represents in that sense i think that's it really i think for me he has become an emblem of intellectual courage and i mean it's quite interesting there's been a move um in more recent years to claim him as the first martyr for science because one of uh, one of the things he did believe he was a, a great advocate of the Copernican view of yes. um, of the universe, but he went one step further and built on Copernicus's theories to argue that the universe was infinite and that there could potentially be multiple worlds, um, which is sort of quite an interesting predecessor of uh, you know things that with the multiverse theory, um, yeah. but he wasn't. Uh, it's it's really frustrating because the the record of his trial of his Roman trial has been lost um, over the years, and what survives is a, a sort of charge sheet which says that he was indicted for eight charges of heresy. Um, but his his cosmology isn't really doesn't seem to feature in those charges. Um, it's much more about his uh, his religious beliefs. Um, but there was a in in twenty fourteen there was a a new. Um, an updated version of the series um, Cosmos and uh, presented by Neil deGrasse Tyson. And they did a whole mm. episode about Bruno's life um, in which they sort of left out all of his slightly murky uh, mag- <laughs> magical beliefs. And, and, Crazy stuff, yeah, yeah. And they did try to claim that he was a martyr, you know, the first martyr for scientific thought. Um, and B- Professor Brian Cox has mentioned him in his books in the past, but he, I, I would agree with Brian Cox because he he said something like, you know, he's more belligerent free thinker than than actual scientist. You know, his scientific methods yes. don't it, they don't really hold up, but people have built on them. Um, type- he's a seeker. He's a yeah. contrarian. He's looking for you know the truth. Yeah, I mean, he might not he might not be that enjoyable a person to encounter today. He might be more like a sort of like a a conspiracy theorist or an anti-vaxxer or the guy who knows the the truth that you don't know <laughs> if you imagine you met him today but that's not how he is in your books well, he's a yeah. in your books he's definitely he foreshadows almost an enlightenment figure doesn't he is open-minded and he finds that open-mindedness in in england which is where your books are mostly set on in in the in that brief historical period of um of freedom of thought in england well yeah that that was the part of um his life that i really f- fixed on and wanted to to draw out um that i think he was uh yeah i th- i think he was i don't i don't know what he would have been like today i don't know what beliefs he would have embraced but i think he was um he certainly i i definitely think he would have voted remain and i drew great ire for writing a blog post about this before the <laughs> referendum in 2016 because he was um one of the sort of prevailing threads through his quite often quite incoherent philosoph- philosophical ideas yeah. um, is 
the idea of unity. He was very distressed by um, the turbulence that was going on, the religious conflict that was going on in Europe mm. at the time. And he he was trying to develop this philosophy to for which you know he partly looked back to ancient Egyptian religion. Um, but what he wanted above all was to develop a religious and philosophical system that would unite Catholic and Protestant and make them see, uh, I don't have you know the exact quote in front of me, but to make them see that um, that there was more that they had more in common than divided yeah, them you yeah. know, to, to kind of to, you know to paraphrase. Um, yeah. So that was something that he was very um, invested in. and certainly even during his last imprisonment, he was still, writing letters to the Pope, which he was trying to get into the hands of the Pope to suggest that he had the solution to the religious conflict that was tearing Europe apart at the time. So I definitely think he was, and he he was somebody who also had travelled far more than most people would have done at the time. He, well, I remember reading your blog at the time of the referendum about him and, and thinking that one of the things you obviously admired about him was his almost cosmopolitanism, the fact that unlike others, he moved around borders. Is that right? You admire his free thinking, but you also admire his his his... Um, his frictionless <laughs> travel. Yeah, I think he. I mean, it, because it wasn't easy to travel um, it, <clears throat> at the time. You you had to sort of have a reason to do it. You know, either you would be in the military or you would be a diplomat or or a pilgrim. Um, but most people didn't travel even around their own country. You had to sort of get written permissions to move around. So to to have lived in as many European countries as he did under various different um, shades of Catholicism and Protestantism. I think he he certainly would have had a much broader worldview than than a lot of the people that he came into contact with, because he would have met so many different people with with diverse beliefs, and I'm sure that must have formed his character. That was certainly something that I wanted to to bring out in my fictional version of him. And are these things that you believe in uh, yourself? Oh yeah, specifically I mean, <laughs> this about about cultural traffic and cosmopolitanism and moving around. Is this a big part of your own worldview? It is, and I I feel very fortunate because um, my parents were both language teachers, um, and they they taught French and Spanish, both of them, and and so we spent a lot of time. You know, languages were spoken in the house when I was a child. Um, there were a lot of books in different languages around the house. Um, they had a lot of friends that, you know, they both lived in France and Spain at various times. My mother was a great traveller before she um, had children. And so she'd lived sort of all over the world. And uh, so they had friends from, you know, different countries who would come and stay with us. And we would go and stay with, you know, friends of my mother's often in France or in Spain. And, and so that was a big part. Of, that was just taken for granted, you know, when I was growing up, that we were part of um, you know that languages were important. That understanding other cultures was important, and um, and I I feel very fortunate to have been given that. And I that's why I, you know, one does try to be uh, to be understanding of people who uh, who don't have that, who who haven't had that experience in their past. But I I, I feel so sad. You know, there was a, th a thread today on Twitter by the composer Howard Goodall about how difficult it's going to be for musicians to tour. Um, you know, next year and once the yeah, after Brexit, yeah, yeah, yeah after Brexit, yeah. and I, I just feel you know, and I, I noticed it, you know, when when literary festivals were still happening, that how how much more difficult it was going to become to bring writers over from other countries to speak here. And friends of mine who run literary festivals were already kind of worrying about how that was 
going to, you know, how it's going to affect their programming. And I, it just seems so sad to me and to, to impoverish our cultural life by, by making it more difficult to, to have cultural dialogue um, with, especially with our nearest neighbours. Um, so I do, yeah, I think, I think that, you know, to try and understand um, and, and collaborate with uh, internationally is, is a, a huge, you know, it's a huge part of um, what I care about. And I think that, uh, you know, and I do, I do see that reflected in, in Bruno's writings and in his life as well. This open-mindedness, openness to different influences and cultural interchange and, and, and commitment to free thinking and so on, um, is, this, is this how you were raised? You mentioned your parents yeah. just then. Um, and no, it's, it's funny because uh, I, I grew up in – no, I was raised um, Christian in, in a very particular kind of evangelical Christian church, which um, – when I was a small child, was was quite sort of ordinary and stayed, and uh, you know we we would go every Sunday and we sang hymns, and I would go to the Sunday school and we would be taught Bible stories, and uh, you know I was always very good at memorising the Bible verses and and kind of <laughs> winning the sweets, you know. So oh right, yeah, um, scripture prizes yep. for the story of Ruth and that sort exactly, of thing. Exactly, <laughs> all of that, yeah. and, and you know holiday <laughs> church holiday clubs, um, and that was just sort of. That was how I was raised. It was how most of the people that that we um, socialized with were part of the church. And uh, so, again, that was something that was taken for granted very much. And then when I got into my teens, um, the church that that my parents went to um, had expanded quite a lot. And it it became what I guess people would call sort of happy clappy now. And uh, but but at the time... um, I don't know whether this particularly will mean anything to you, but there was this this sort of phenomenon called the Toronto Blessing, which was something that was happening in in Canada, and then it swept across the states. And it was uh, the idea behind it was that um, all the stuff you read about in the New Testament uh, happening in the early church was still available to Christians now. So uh, you know, miracles, um, <clears throat> healing, speaking in tongues, oh, right. ca- casting out demons, uh, all of this sort of stuff, and it and it. It swept across um, a particular kind of network of evangelical churches in this country as well, and um, and so that was something that the church I belonged to was it. It sort of seemed to go very much in that direction, and I think that was. Um, and is this something you did? Did you speak? Oh in yeah, tongues? for sure. You know, especially oh, really? with, with the young people, it, it definitely kind of got it. It inspired and captured the imagination of the of the young people, younger people in particular. And I think certainly for my parents' generation, they were quite wary of it. Um, but but for the young people, and I was in the youth group then, and I was very kind of gung ho about it. And we would go to some of these um, sort of Christian. Uh, I don't know what you'd call them, sort of like festivals, but um, right. where people would come and speak and there'd be a lot of people would come over from the States to speak who were, uh, you know, meant to be sort of great leaders in this kind of thing. Um, and I can remember this being very, um, it was a sort of a badge of honour, you know, if you if you could do the the, the fainting or the speaking in tongues. And it was... It oh, you read, fell to the ground yeah, and rolled around and all, all this. Yeah, really? Gosh. All of this. I, I went to this, I went to a... A festival. It was sort of over in Malvern somewhere, and I do remember there was one <laughs> one evening. Um, that, you know, this was with this with the church youth. There was one evening where they, you know they had a, a tent where um, they were casting demons out of people. And when I look back on it now, I think 
that seems absolutely insane that I was that I was right. walking around kind of watching this stuff happening. Um, and it, but how did it feel at the time? At the time, it oh, I was you know wholeheartedly into it when I was sort of fifteen or sixteen, and I think that's something that's very. Um, you believed it, did you? You believe this is real? I, that God was moving. In yeah, you and- I definitely did, and I I think there was a except that you know I think there was always um, a slight fear at the back of my mind of I think it was a just part of it was a desire not to be left out you know it was what everybody around me was doing and uh so I kind of threw myself into it because I wanted to belong um and it was really only as I as I sort of moved through sixth form and towards university that I I began to kind of look quite skeptically on it and and start to to think that that you know maybe that wasn't um necessarily the whole of the world view that I wanted to so you started your move away from it because of personal skepticism about whether or not it was true or yes I think that I think that was part Mm. of it um and I think certainly for me the big break came uh when I went to university because um you know there's an enormous um pull I think when you've grown up in a particular faith and and that's part of your family life and part of the community that you're in um it would have been extremely difficult I think for me when I was still living at home to to suddenly announce to my parents that I didn't want to go to church anymore I think it would have caused a lot of distress and I I I didn't want that so you know towards the end of the time that I was um you know when I was doing a levels uh I had started to kind of wonder if this was something that I wanted to be, uh, you know, to be part of. But I, I didn't, I, I think I was uh, anxious about rejecting it because that's another huge thing when you, when you leave a faith mm. is what's left behind. Um, because it's been the whole infrastructure of your, of all your values, I think, you know, growing up. And um, so it did take me until I, until I went to university to, to, I think, have the, to be able to think for myself on that and and to make my own choice. Um, And where did you get your values from at that point? I mean, what were the resources that you saw then or see now you having your own disposal for to shape your own values and so on? um, It's strange because I think uh, you have to think very carefully. You know, if you decide that you're going to throw out everything that you've been taught since you were, you know, old enough to remember, um, then you are left with, you know, questions about what comes what comes in its place. And I think I was very lucky that um, at university I had one or two tutors who were, um, you know, I now look back and I think, well, they obviously were kind of had great sort of humanist warmth, and they were people who believed in, uh, you know, the values of literature. Um, and I think well, English at Cambridge has, has, has notoriously been a, a very humanist uh, field of both well, yeah. tutors and syllabus for, for decades, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I think you know, I'm, I mean, uh, I've realised how woolly that sounded—the values of literature. But <clears throat> they were people who taught. No, it doesn't sound woolly at me. all. I think it sounds quite um, specific. Well, I think you know what I—I suppose what I mean is people who taught me to uh, to look for value in books and culture and, and art, but also who were themselves. Um, you know, not necessarily uh, hardcore atheists in any way, but but people whose whose values didn't depend on you know this very um, rigid belief system. Because I think the one thing that that really became clear to me once I'd left home and gone to university was how very 
homogenous um, the culture that I'd grown up in had been and uh, and and how very intolerant in some ways. And I want to be very careful saying this because I'm not suggesting that, you know, there were some very good, kind, decent people in that church. And uh, and, and there were a handful of people who, you know, who believed things that I uh, now look back on and find extraordinarily um, divisive and offensive. But there were also a lot of good people who, uh, you know, for whatever reason, that was where they'd chosen to kind of locate their, yes. you know, including my own parents. Um, of and but you know there was certainly uh, um how can i put it there there were a currents of of real intolerance running through um the belief system that i was brought up with there were you know it it was homophobic it was um it's not even in a kind of particularly vicious way just in a sort of it was assumed that everybody accepted, just implicitly yeah that everybody accepted that this was wrong and that you wouldn't do it and i yeah uh, i remember when you know the son of uh, some of my parents' friends came out and the way people were talking about it was that you'd think he died, you know, the, the kind of right. the pity that was, you know, and the sympathy that was extended to them. And and uh, so I it I had to step away from that to realise and quite how intolerant of other religious beliefs it was and, and you know, that the whole the whole tenor of it really was that um you had a duty as a Christian to convert other people and to convert them to your to your way of seeing things. And this was seen as kind of benevolent and a good thing and for their own good. Um, and so I think university, going to Cambridge for me, certainly um, it was the first time that I was mixing. You know, I didn't grow up in a big multicultural city. I, I grew up in the countryside. And it was the first time I was mixing with people who had different faiths and different beliefs. And, um, uh, you know, there was a, it was the most diverse. And I know even Cambridge in the 90s probably wasn't the most diverse <laughs> place I could have chosen to go. But certainly it was much more culturally diverse um, than, right. than where I'd grown up. And so that definitely um, allowed me to foster, a, you know, a kind of understanding of what it meant to, to extend respect to other people's beliefs as well. And you found belonging in that community of, of of undergraduates. Yeah, I did. I think that was, you know, it was very, um, I suppose, a sort of replacement um, in a way for the community that I'd that I'd left behind. And I did try joining a church. Um, I went along to a church a couple of times, and 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 I just didn't feel at home there. And and in fact, the, you know, I felt much more at home going to um, Evensong in you know my college chapel which I didn't do very often and when I did it was just for the for the music really but I I found that much more um I found more solace in that than I did in all the kind of guitars and drums and the sort of happy clappy songs of the <laughs> of the evangelical church so I suppose um yeah I, I think it, that was the point when I realized I could sort of enjoy the aesthetics of it without having to buy into the whole belief system and you, so you'd rejected, obviously, it, the this intellectually, and now also moved away from it morally as well. Um, and then, do you, did you did you ever um, consciously miss the belonging aspect? Yeah, I think that sense of community is something that um, it, it has. I have found that hard to reproduce, um, and I know that. You know the communities. It's enormously important. Uh, you know, my, my my parents still belong to a church, not the same one, but <clears throat> they're the community that they have there is is enormously important to them. Um, and I can see the value of that. And I think that is something that I miss sometimes. Um, and it's interesting. Where do you find it? 
Well, I suppose among my, among, you know, I, I suppose uh, probably the place I feel closest to that is um, going to literary festivals, you know, and somewhere, oh, I go to somewhere like Hay and I meet um, all, you know, my writer friends that I, I don't see for a lot of the rest of the year. And I go and listen to, um, you know, somebody like AC Grayling giving a talk about you know what friendship means or something and and it's it is almost yes. like listening to a sermon it it puts me right back in that in that <laughs> sense of feeling that you know I'm among like-minded people and and we're all yes. sort of, um so that's yeah that's I suppose in the literary community is where I find that but I just wanted to go back to what you said about rejecting yes, it, it morally um because I think what I think I certainly did, you know, as a student, I think I did reject all of the morals that I'd been brought up with um, quite comprehensively and kind of went a bit nuts because I'd been very good as a teenager. I'd been very studious and very sort of, um, you know, a very good Christian. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so I did all of that in my kind of um, student days and early 20s, kind of threw off everything and, uh, and you know, was a kind of huge party animal for a few years. And then when I kind of calmed down a bit, I realized that actually there's a lot of um, a lot of the morals that I was brought up with uh, are still there as a bedrock. You know, I mean, and, and certainly that I learned from my parents. And, and I, I came one of the things that I concluded um, a long time ago was that I think religion is a sort of amplifier. You know, I think for I think for people who are mm. fundamentally kind and and good and thoughtful and want to do things to help others a religious faith just it, it sort of just sort of amplifies and focuses that um which is certainly the case with with my parents and many of their friends um and then i think on the other hand if somebody is angry and bigoted and resentful of other people they can also find in religion uh, a ways to of focusing that as well in in exactly the same religion often which is um you know and you can find those both of those kinds of people in uh you know in the christian church and in in other faiths as well i'm sure but um so i felt that a lot of the the values that i held on to were things that i've been taught growing up anyway about you know trying to do what you can for people who are less fortunate and trying to be, uh, you know, considerate of others um, and, you know, have self-discipline and those kind of things. Um, and and that it was possible to hold on to those without necessarily having the trappings of, um, you know, the stories that went along with them. So, so yeah, I, th I don't think, you know, I think that in, in later years, I kind of circled back to a lot of the values that I was taught, but without the same context. And does that mean that you see those as religious values that you've retained or values that are somehow independent of religion that you have now, but that religious people also had then and, and still? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I do think that those, I think there are fundamental um, values, which I would call humanist values, which are also common to, you know, a lot of yes, religious widely faiths. Shared. Yeah, a lot of, yeah, a lot of religious faiths. Um, but they just sort of provide a, a different justification for, you know, I mean, humanism yes. says you, you try to help people who are less fortunate because, you know, because we all have to take care of each other. Um, whereas, you know, the Christian church would say, because Jesus told us to, but, but it's in the end you end up, you know, so I'm, I'm, um, I'm much less, uh, I suppose, um, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm more kind of forgiving of, of people's motivation if, they end up at the same goal um, 
if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes that's, I've noticed uh, that in myself and lots of other people. I think in a sense, that's sometimes something that comes with age. You get less obsessed with the beliefs mm. and then you notice more about, you know, it's the shared values that might, the consequences. You know, that's a good humanist belief in itself, yeah. actually, because that's the point, isn't it? It's the consequences or actions that matter rather than, you know, your motivation yeah, exactly. or your virtues or whatever else. Um, and just thinking of that, I mean, somebody who's writing and, and in fact, conversation has been very, um, was very influential to me when I was um, sort of after I'd left the church was uh, Richard Holloway, who I'm, I'm sure you oh, sure yes. you know him and, and his writing. But he he writes so beautifully about what it means to have moved from a sort of quite literal understanding of the Christian faith to a, a much more allegorical and, and sort of all-embracing idea of what those values mean, you know, uprooted from that particular context um and i think his books are really um they they spoke to me quite profoundly i think i'd like to come back uh, at the end to um novels and literature and english literature because i think it's clear from what you've said that um this is one of the things that's played a big part in 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 your life and in the transitions in your life as well um people you know it's it's been well observed by literary critics that the novel is the most humanist of art forms you know you it it, mm. it really is um and it's, it's no surprise that lots of novelists from george Eliot to you know john fowles to well almost every novelist you think of in the 20th century have been associated with humanist organizations or just been humanists in their own lives um i wondered what you thought novels did for us both as the reader and, and as the author in terms of values, moral development. You know, what are the values of a novelist? Is there such a thing? Is that a something you can talk about? Is it something that you feel you have when you engage? You know, why choose that art form? What is it that motivates you to to do that? Well, I think um, storytelling is so deeply ingrained in in um, you know not just how we understand the world, but how how we view the world, you know, how our brains are formed. There's a fantastic book, which I'm sure people will have mentioned before by Will Storr called The Science of Storytelling, um, which I found enormously interesting, uh, particularly looking back at, you know, my childhood beliefs and, and how how those had been formed, because he does argue that the stories that we're told uh, at a young age about how the world is, uh, they actually physically shape the, when the brain, when the brain is very plastic in young children, they physically shape you know, the way that we interpret the world. Um, and therefore, I think storytelling, you know, we're, we're all primed to make sense of the world through stories. We can see this playing out in, in politics at the moment. It's, you know, who controls the narrative. Um, and so I think, I think for a novelist, um, and it really does feel like the, you know, the most um, enormous cliche, but it is a chance to see the world through somebody else's eyes and to make sense of your so when I write I'm writing partly to make sense of my own experience um and when I read I want to read I mean I I like to read stories about people who have um been through things that I've been through uh so that I can see my own experience reflected back but I also like to read in order to open my eyes to completely different um types of story and I think that's why it's so important. Um, there's a lot of talk at the moment about, you know, diversity in publishing and opening it up to new voices. And um, something like this year's Booker Prize shortlist showcases a, a, quite a variety of voices and stories from different parts of the world and different backgrounds. And I think the more that we can hear the stories of people who are 
not like us, um, particularly as we're living in a world where, you know, through social media, we are becoming more and more confined to our own bubbles and speaking to people who who only ever agree with us and share the same views. <laughs> um, and again, we see that playing out in the political arena as well. So I think stories really do have enormous power to um, to allow us to understand other people and to understand uh, different lives. And um, when I write about historical characters, that's something I'm trying to do. I'm trying to understand how people lived then and, and what that might have to say to us now. Free thinking, cultural interchange, cosmopolitanism and unity, diversity, shared values and the value of stories. Stephanie Merritt, thank you for telling us what you believe. Thank you so much. That was Stephanie Merritt telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK and this was the sixth episode of the second season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday, except for the next two weeks when we'll be taking a break for the holidays. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about humanism, Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And do consider joining as a member or supporter if you like what you see. As a festive stocking filler, you can also purchase the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops. 